different things will work for different people in different areas. I mean, you can listen to them, but take it with a grain of salt because it might not work in your area. Welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes of wholesaling and house flipping businesses. The systems and automation that we discuss will help you build a real business instead of another job for yourself. From beginners to those doing hundreds of thousands a year, we go deep into the details and strategies that are working today. And now your host, Bill Allen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. And we're in the middle of a marketing series. So as you know, we just got back from our cruise. So we put out the podcast about uh, kind of behind the scenes of one of the presentations that I did on the cruise. And then now we're in the middle of our marketing series. And the whole goal of this series is right now, I feel like leads and conversions. This is the thing that everybody's talking about. How do I get more leads? How do I get more leads? How do I get more leads? Things are becoming a little bit more competitive in the marketplace. And this is the number one thing that came out of the cruise with all of our high-level seven-figure runway and seven-figure altitude members is marketing, marketing, marketing. So we put together this series of presentations to try to go through a, d- a lot of different channels and talk to the experts and the pros in each individual channel to say, how can we help you guys drive more leads? And basically, I don't plan on holding anything back here in my company. I know Justin's not planning on holding anything back. If our secrets. So some of the things that we do, and a lot of people are saying direct mail is dead. So I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time because I love direct mail. It is the source of the majority of our deals that we do at Blackjack. And I wanted to bring on a pro to talk with me about um, direct mail. So welcome, Justin Silverio. He's the owner of Open Letter Marketing. What's up, Justin? How's it going, Bill? Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. And I am really excited about this because I kind of nerd out on direct mail, pulling lists, all that stuff, KPIs. And I really, I hear all this noise in the marketplace of direct mail's dead. Uh, you got to go online. Facebook is the place to get leads, texting, rings, voicemail, cold calling, all this stuff. And we still kind of you know, cut our teeth and our bread and butter is direct mail. So um, what do you think about that? Direct mail's dead. Everybody's saying that. Uh, well, they can keep thinking that, but for the people that are doing direct mail, we're still uh, getting a lot of deals. Um, I mean, I've been using direct mail ever since the beginning when I started my real estate investment company back in 2010, and it's, um, it's consistently always provided me with the most amount of deals. Now, competition has increased and strategy changes a little bit, but direct mail is still my number one uh, source of deals. Yeah, same for us. Um, we, I pretty much, that's how I got started. I focused on one marketing channel and that was it. And it was direct mail. I basically, Andy McFarland was my mentor coming in about four and a half years ago. And I just basically did whatever he told me to do. And he was doing a lot of different channels at that time. But I said, look, I need to pick one and I need to own it. So it, hopefully that's the resounding theme throughout these is number one, you should always be using the free channels that you have. So networking, um, working with wholesalers, uh, just realtors, maybe making leads uh, or making um, offers off the MLS, stuff like that. You should be maximizing that stuff. And then when it comes to paid traffic and paid channels, really what I see is sometimes people will just go really broad and really thin over like five or 10 of them instead of really going deep in, in one and then mastering it, doing well and maximizing that and then moving on to the next one. So that's what I did. I kind of jumped in direct mail, focused on it, dug really deep in there, hit my entire marketplace. And that's when I moved online. But I didn't move online until I was consistently doing deals. And just I, I dug into direct mail, figured out how to work list source really well, pulled my lists, track my numbers, and then just consistently send mail. So that's kind of my background. T- tell us a little bit about you. Like, wh- you've been doing this since 2010, and has it all been direct mail from the beginning for you? 
Yeah, since the beginning for my, yeah, my real estate investment business, I've always uh, started off with direct mail because I wanted to do something where I was in direct control of my marketing, right? Other people have different philosophies and different ways to, that they get their deals. They leverage real estate agents or the MLS. But I looked at myself and I said, I don't want to rely on anybody else for my deal flow. I want to make sure that I can generate it uh, because at the end of the day, the buck stops, stops with me. So if I, so I want to make sure that I will get really good and understand marketing because at the end of the day, us as investors, our businesses are only as successful as the deal flow that's coming in. Um, so I knew that that was the biggest, one of the biggest pieces to make sure that my company was stabilized. Um, so yeah, I started off with direct mail, really understood it. I think similar to you, I really got down in the numbers, right? Understood um, list source, what the, um, each different criteria was. We have a very robust back end of our MLS. So we have a public record section in the MLS. I guarantee I know that better than 99% of real estate agents because I literally spend almost every single day um, understanding you know, what, what it has to offer, how you can export information, how you can really um, take a lot of those uh, data points and convert them over to what's going to be a really good prospect to start marketing to. So do you, let's, let's see, I, I kind of want to dig at a list source. It's kind of like the beginning of everything or at least your list, right? And it doesn't matter if they're doing rings, voicemail, text messaging, cold calling, direct yeah. mail, anything. Really, that's where the, it kind of everything starts. 100%. So understanding what your avatar is, where you want to go. The thing that I love about direct mail, which we'll get into, is that you can scale it. And and I was able to really kind of go big until I, and I just kept scaling it up and up and up. But it really starts with your list. So in the beginning, I was a little bit, I think people are gun shy about kind of, did I pull the right list? Did I send the right mail piece? Did I do all these things? And for me, I just jumped in there ran some numbers, got a list, started sending mail. That's, and just, then I started tweaking that as I went. Is there something about like, what kind of lists are you pulling? Uh, has it been just big bulk equity or do you go into detail? It sounds like you do something with the MLS. Yeah, I do. I pull a lot of different lists. Some are very specific niche lists and others are what I call general lists that you're pulling from list source. So um, I do spend a lot of time in list source. I'll pull the general list like absentee owned, equity, um, senior list, so 55 years and older, 10 or more years they've lived there. Maybe it's three or f three and more bedrooms. Um, so now their kids maybe moved out, they're looking to down downsize. Um, related party list, I don't know if you've heard of that one. No, tell me about that. Okay, so this is a list that you can pull from list source, but not too many people know about it or pull it. So here's a little ninja trick. Um, so related party, I look in my area, there are no houses that are going to sell for like $30,000 or under in the Boston area. N not at all. So I actually look for properties that sold under $30,000 because generally those transactions will show that it's a non-arms length transaction and it's actually uh, generally a transfer within the family. So it might be related to estate planning purposes or like a transfer just to somebody else, a member in the family. So I want to look at those properties to see what transferred over. Then I'll go a little bit deeper and say, let me see the absentee owned related party because now they may own a property that was inherited to them and they don't live there. So maybe it's unwanted. They don't need it, um, but it was just transferred over to them. So, so do you use uh, like last market sale date or last market sale price or do you, is there yes. an actual related party uh, check mark inside list source? Last market sale price. 
Okay. So yes. what it, what it transferred for it for at that time. So depending on where you are, it would depend on that number. I know down in Florida where we invest pretty much all the just um, like quick claim deeds are mm-hmm. typically $10. Like that's the typical structure of our quick claim deed is yep. what they'll put on on the documents. So um, it sounds like in Boston, under $30,000 is just unrealistic that somebody's going to sell it for that. So it's typical uh, just to transfer a property between whether it's a, a state planning or something like that, like you said. Yes. So yep. you'll do that and then also tack on the absentee. Uh, but yep. will you do the absentee and owner-occupied ones or just the absentee um, non arms So I will mail to only absentee-owned. Um, I will mail to all absentee-owned. But for the owner occupied, I won't mail to them unless those properties show up on another list. Okay. So you're stacking your list to yes. kind of overlap them to see what's yeah. happening. Okay. So, so I love so the fact that we're just like jumping right into the, to the gold <laughs> bombs here, right from the beginning. Yeah. So I, there's probably people who are like pulling over, writing this down and then turning off this podcast and going on a list source. So this is awesome. Yeah. Good. No, because the, the, the lead, the lead pulling aspect is absolutely huge. Like I want to start with the best best data that I possibly can. And I'll narrow it down to even identify like where my high quality leads are even within the list versus my low quality leads. Um, so in addition to pulling list source, um, I'll do the niche list, right? Driving for dollars, tax liens, code violations. Um, in Massachusetts, if somebody owns, owes the state over $25,000, their name will actually be on a public website. So I pull all those property owner or those um, people and then I cross-reference to see if they own properties in their town. And if they do, I put them on the list. So I do a lot of different types of niche lists. And, um, and then I put them all together to layer the leads on top of each other. Okay. So I just want to make sure we kind of lay this down for those that are trying to keep up. So list source is basically, it's just an online website run by CoreLogic. It's a company that just aggregates data and sells data. And so you can pull a list with different filters and features. And we have a great video inside of our uh, uh, seven figure house flipping and wholesaling group. It's a free group. You can jump in there. It's a video that I made. It's about an hour long and I walk people through list source and pulling lists. And I talk through almost every feature. It sounds like I'm going to have to update it with one of these gold bombs you just dropped on the related party. But um, if you guys go in there, look on Facebook, search that seven figure house flipping and wholesaling group, you can just, um, I'll bump it up to the top right after we drop this podcast. But that's kind of a free video we put together, but you can Understanding that I think is huge. Just understanding your marketplace, the demographics, what you can search, what you can't search. Um, and, and then we'll kind of go into some of the niches, but inside of list source, I just want, I'm interested to hear your, like what you think about this. I try not to put a bunch of layers on my, like a lot of filters. Um, mm-hmm. So what, when I look at my list is when I'm, when I'm looking at an area, whether it's a zip code, you can draw a map, you can do a county, you can do a city, you can do lots of different geographical searches inside ListSource. And that's where I start. I start with the geographics. And then from there, I look at some of the filters. You can look at equity percentage. You can look at bedrooms and bathrooms. You can look at square footage. You can look at last market sale date. So the last time it was sold, you can look at um, the last price it was transferred at. You can look at lots of different things. And what I try to do, and you can look at absentee owned, which means they don't live at the house. So the address, the mailing address for the house is separate than the house address. Mm -hmm. And then owner occupies. And then you could also look at demographics, which is age. And they even have some things broken down that I don't use, but they like what kind of magazines they subscribe to and all kinds of crazy stuff in there. 
So what I try to do is I try to limit the number of filters that I have. The way I look at it is the more filters inside a list source that I stack up, the smaller my list gets. And a lot of times what you think, most investors will think that, well, that's good. I only have enough money to, to send out a thousand postcards. So I'm going to filter my list with everything mm-hmm. and just get a thousand names. Well, what I used to do is I look at my budget and then I would just change one variable. So it, usually it was equity. It was either equity or I would use age when it was owner-occupied houses. And that's what I would filter to get the list size that I need to mail. And I wouldn't put on 50 or 20 different filters. I see a lot of people do that. And then what happens is you're really starting to kind of wipe away almost everything inside that database to send mail. What do you think about that? Do you agree or disagree? I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you because my whole methodology of pulling lists and then... So when I pull a list, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to mail anything to them, mm. right? I'm just pulling them because I want that. That is a data point for me. And as I start to layer the lists, then I start to add other data points. So there are certain lists that I'm definitely going to mail to, like driving for dollars, tax liens. I'm always mailing those people. But I might not mail to everybody on my equity list, right? Certain people, depending on the area, I might mail to. But now if they stack up with other lists, then I'll definitely mail to them. And it's going to be more difficult to identify those different data points if you're restricting your list so much. So I definitely keep it open like you do um, and get more leads out of the different kind of, uh, you know, list source leads. I like that because at that point, for me, it was a matter of of price in the beginning. So I was paying like 18 cents a a name or something. And now that we've got this deal down to three cents, um, I basically will pull a huge list all the time and just kind of tweak it and play with it. So... What I do is I'll pull that list. And the other tip that I'll give to anybody who's listening, and it's, it's in the video as well, but if you, I add all the data that I can on that list. So when I pull a list, let's say I'm pulling one for 20,000 names. And then what I can do is I can go into all those things that I was talking about, bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage, um, last market sale date, last market sale price, and I select all of it. So I'll select every option. So when I get the list, there's enough, all the columns have that data and information on it. If you don't actually select that information, and there's a hack in that video that I I have at the end. There's a button that you can click for standard data towards the end when you buy it, which will give you pretty much everything. But what I like to do is select all of it. So if equity is not something that I'm filtering by, I will pull I'll just say all the equity, any positive, negative, unknown, everything. So I get that column and it's because they'll give you the data for no extra charge at our rate of three cents. Mm -hmm. So I make sure that I have data points on everything because like you said, now you're going and you might be stacking two other lists on top of each other. And when you do that, you might see, hey, this house has 30% equity or this house has 90% equity on top of your tax delinquent data. So you can see all of those points on that list that you have because the Excel sheet now has all the data instead of just the three points that you picked. So I realize some people are listening and you and I know what we're talking about. So (laughs) I highly encourage everyone to go watch this video because it will walk you through it. You can pause it, you can rewind it, you can do all that stuff. And I actually share my screen and walk through all of the source. So um, if I can get Kyle to figure out how to put it in the show notes or a link to it, we will. But if not, it's definitely in that seven-figure house flipping and wholesaling free Facebook group that we have. Okay, so we've got this list. We buy the data and then you're doing a lot of different niche stuff uh, yeah. on top of that. So tax delinquent, driving for dollars, things like that. And is everything you're doing is overlaying and stacking your lists or are you mailing big bulk stuff too? Um, so a lot of it, 
So once I get my, my list source leads, I call those my general lists, right? Those are easier. And the way that I look at it is my general lists, usually there's gonna be more, I'm expecting more competition or it's not gonna be um, um, as great as a list as my niche lists. If it's the way that I look at it is, the more difficult the list is to pull, the better, um, the higher likelihood I'll have a chance of getting a deal. So, um, but I definitely want those general lists because I still get deals off those, but I now want to include them with the niche list. Um, two other niche lists, I don't know if you won't care to know, but some like special niche lists that I use. Um, so two of them, depending on if you're in the city or in the suburbs. So if there are developers, if there's um, investors that do more development deals, I'll look at properties um, where the lot size is, it's twice the lot size. So I'll give you an example. In one of the towns, there's three residential zones, SRA, SRB, SRC. Uh, the zone SRA is a minimum lot size of 10,000 square feet. So I'll pull properties, and I do this in the back end of my MLS, in the public records. They have all this data. So I'll pull, I'll say, show me all the houses in SRA, and now um, restrict it to only 20,000 square feet or more lot size. So that's potentially two lots. And now show me properties that are under 1,100 square feet. So what that gives me the ability to do is talk to those, um, those sellers, and if they're looking to sell, and I can subdivide based on a frontage or what the, the regulations of zoning are, um, I could buy that house for market value because I'm adding so much value to that lot, those two lots um, where I can subdivide, that uh, I can almost buy it for market value. Um, and that, this is something for you, your exit strategy on this is to subdivide it and build a new, a new house yes. on the other lot. Yep. Okay. On, on both lots, because that house is small. And generally, mm -hmm. if that house is small, and I'll only do it in certain areas. So that's, I only do that in um, towns that have high values, where the dollar per square foot is really high. In my low market areas, it doesn't really make all that sense, because it's really difficult to build and to um, get enough profit out of the deal to buy that, mar that original property at market value. So it's usually my mid to really high uh, markets or towns. Awesome. So if you're a wholesaler and you're listening to this going, uh, yeah, but Justin can do new construction. I don't do new construction. Well, you can set that all that up, right? If you do, you do a little bit of legwork, you present this to a builder or somebody like Justin or another flipper who knows and is doing new construction. This is a pure gold mine. You can actually pluck these suckers off the MLS uh, from the yep. sounds of it because other people are overlooking it or not digging as deep as Justin is on the MLS right now and pay basically paying market value. Uh, you know, wiping the house and then uh, subdividing it and building new construction. And there's yeah. a lot of money. I'm here in Nashville. This is an area where lots of people are doing this and they're doing zero lot line homes. They're doing, they're building new construction, Airbnbs. If you can understand the exit strategy of, and get creative, this is an area where you can find hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, I know some of the numbers on some of your deals like this. What's, what's a profit look like on some of these that you've done like that? Uh, for development deals? Yeah. So a lot of my, most of my development deals are right now in the city, which I'm going to explain the other way to do. Like uh, if you're, if you're buying in the city and you're looking for multifamily development deals, um, the strategy that I use for those, and then I'll tell you the numbers on okay. kind, of, kind of what, it's very similar, only in the city, you're looking at multifamily instead of, you know, subdividing lots. You can still look at those, but very difficult to do because usually the lots are really small, especially in Boston. Um, but I'll look at, again, I'll look at the zoning 
and I'll look at the area. So if a neighborhood is zoned for three or more units, I'll look at properties that are anywhere from single family or just a duplex, okay? Because now I can potentially add one, uh, one or more units to those properties. And uh, at you know a sellout of anywhere from $700 to $1,000 a square foot, you can, you can understand like adding 1,000 square feet, adding a unit, that brings a ton of value to it. So to give, to give you an example, um, the last deal that I bought in Boston, uh, in South Boston, it was a three-family property. It was on a lot um, zoned for four units and up. So bought the property for $2 million with a $250,000 kicker um, if we got the fourth unit. Um, we did end up getting the fourth unit, but the, the seller said, forget it. Just give me $10,000 extra at closing and we're good. So that was great. <laughs> um, and the sellout on that, so it'll be about a million and a half in construction and the sellout's about 5.5 million. Um, so we'll clear over a million on that one. So that's pretty nice. Yeah. And I'm sure that if you're a wholesaler, listen to this, there, there's a developer in your area who would love to make a little over a million. They're going to have to do some legwork, do some construction. Obviously, a million and a half in construction is not the easiest thing to handle. But this is definitely a place that you could make. And these kind of wholesale deals could have hundreds of thousands of dollars. These could be six-figure wholesale deals for sure. Yeah, these, I mean, even, so I don't develop everything that I come across. So like one, for instance, that I'm wholesaling, it's a three-family. Um, it's in kind of a, you know, up and coming area. And I'm wholesaling that one, I should make a hundred thousand. I have another two family, I'll wholesale and make about 200,000. So identifying these like little niche areas and these little pockets, um, if you do some legwork, you know, one of them I do have to evict a tenant, I have to pay like $20,000 to get them out. It's a long process, but that legwork is gonna yield a big profit margin. And, um, and even going a step further, if they want to take it on and go through some of the zoning, um, I know some people that are just passing the paper once they get it zoned for additional units, and they're making half a million dollars on it just to go through the yep. process and not taking yep. it on. I remember one of my first interactions with Steve Libman and Travis Cotter when they came into Seven Figure uh, Altitude. They they needed some money. They were looking to borrow some money and I funded one of their deals. It happened to be a bunch of land and all they did was rezone it, get the plans to develop it and they sold it to a developer and they made, I think they made $250,000, Yeah, and I made twelve. I was like, I didn't know you guys were doing this with my money, but this is some of the stuff that they were doing. They were figuring out what the developers are looking for, going after a large lot of land, understanding the underwriting of it, what they're looking for and going out mm -hmm. and finding it using the skills and they used direct mail. They yep. pulled lists and they sent mail and just talked to sellers just like we do. So Absolutely. understanding where these little niches hide can be very valuable, especially in today's market. So yep. I do want to get us back on track a little bit, but to, for those that are listening, whether they're wholesalers or they want to get in the development world or anything like that, it's just understanding kind of your niche and where you fit. You can really find these gold mines in areas where nobody else is, is working right now. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing what everybody's doing, why don't you try to figure out what everybody's not doing and kind of look over there? Because there's a lot of money in those niches. And, and all those deals came from direct mail, just so you know. Awesome. And for me, I've got to do, to get $100,000 in wholesale deals, I got to do eight or nine deals in my markets to, to, to hit that. Or it's, you know, five, five to six deals in Nashville, which is, that's a, that's a big month for us in Nashville, right. five or six deals right now. So, 
we've got the idea of how to pull the list. You've got kind of, uh, my, my biggest list is still these absentee equity lists. And um, if you're not using unknown equity, highly recommend you play around with that in your marketplace. And one little tip that, that I'll give you is uh, be careful with putting an age filter on absentee owned homes. A lot of times what that'll do is they don't have the data for the age of the owner. So what it does is it strips your list down really, really low. So if you're putting an age filter on an absentee owned list, just be careful, take it off and put it back on and see what happens to the numbers and really kind of look and see. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen people who haven't specified between absentee and owner occupied, and then they put age filter on it. They pulled their list and it was all owner occupied homes. They didn't realize it. So um, it definitely in Florida, I know that's a huge issue in some other states where I've helped people with list source. The, the biggest thing is that list can really make or break your, that's the starting point of everything that you do. Absolutely. So it's, it's imperative that you really focus on it. You think about it and you don't just uh, buy it from another company. You actually understand what the data is, what it's like. I've seen a lot of people use a mailhouse that they're buying the list from and the mailhouse is like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get your list for you too and we'll do the mail. So if you are going to do that, make sure you understand what they're doing. You understand the filters um, and you take the time to learn that stuff. So I, yeah. I've never let, I, I don't let anybody else control my list. I don't know if you guys do um, um, pull lists for people too and things like that, but um, my recommendation for people is just if you are going to have somebody else pull your list, make sure you understand what it all is, the demographics, everything. And maybe you pull it inside list source ahead of time to make sure that they're, they're giving you the exact same model and replication of what it was. So, yeah, I, I would say don't, I would, I'm the same way. I don't let anybody else pull my list or touch my lead list at open, at open letter. We do not even pull other people's list because we want them. We have tutorials on how to pull it. It's up to them though. We want them to pull it. We want them to understand what the different criteria, if they change something, what will um, be stripped out, what will stay, because this is such an important aspect. You spend a lot of money over the years. I mean, I never stop mailing to somebody once they're on my list unless they sold the house or tell me to, you know, go screw. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I always mail to them. So I'm spending a good amount of money on these marketing uh, campaigns. So I want to make sure my data is good. Yeah, that's probably the nicest they say that in Boston, I would suspect. So it probably gets really bad. Absolutely. Uh, and like it does anywhere, frankly. So, okay, so we got the list and now we're ready to send some mail. And uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of letters, postcards, those kind of things. And just give me your taste and your feeling on all that stuff. Sure. Um, so different things will work for different people in different areas. Um, so if somebody says, oh, somebody else... You know, postcards are working really great for me over here. Don't really, I mean, you can listen to them, but take it with a grain of salt because it might not work in your area. Um, for instance, for me, postcards don't really work all that well in my area. However, I know postcards work amazing for other people. And especially when you're at scale and you're trying to save costs and all that, it works well. But for my area, what I've seen is, I mean, just to give you an example, the response rate on a letter um, when I was doing, when I had the data to compare it because I was doing it about a year or two years ago. My letters might be at 1.2% response rate. My postcards were probably like 0.3% or 0.35%. So a big difference. Um, and also, I mean, the quality of the people that are the leads that I have, I mean, I'll even split it up. So even going back to the lead list, I'll still identify um, with all those leads after I layer them. What are my high quality leads, medium quality leads and low quality leads? And I'll create different marketing campaigns for each different quality type. 
So for my high quality leads, I might send them all my high quality mail pieces, mm. handwritten letters, professional letters, trifold. And then on my low quality leads, I might just do postcards or text message just to get in front of them. So now I'm understanding where to spend my money and time in the right places. So I'm segmenting my leads a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think that's really important to, to highlight there is it's, it's advantageous to spend a little bit more money or sometimes two or three times the money to get a, the, that response and maybe stand out amongst the crowd to the people who are really motivated. Maybe that, and by high quality, I'm assuming you mean maybe they're on like that you've overlaid a couple lists and there's three, yep. they're in three different lists or yes. it was a really hard list to get. So you don't want to waste it with the postcard and mm -hmm. have the letter and really see the response rate kind of increase. Right. But what I also find is um, even switching up the mail piece and not consistently doing either the, you know a postcard or and just changing up the um, the text, changing up the actual mail piece that you're delivering, that will get people to respond differently. Um, so what I found, not every single mail piece will get somebody to respond the same exact way. People are different; they have different preferences. So really hitting them with different um, aspects and different different types of mailers or even marketing activities too. You know, ringless voicemail, text messaging. Um, that's really important to incorporate. So if you want to stick with postcards, maybe you're hitting with some postcards and then once a quarter, maybe you throw in a letter or a trifold flyer or something like that to mix it up. Okay. So for me, like my feeling on a lot of this stuff is, is similar to what you're talking about. But what I try to do is I try, I, I send about 120,000 pieces a month. We send a ton. Like we sent, we sent over, a, over a million last year. So mm -hmm. what I try to do, especially in my bulk, we do pretty much like bigger lists. I'm not, I'm not as involved, like pulling these really niche lists and focusing on those onesie twosies. I want volume. And mm -hmm. so you got people that are listening to this who are bigger companies that want volume. And then you've got smaller companies who don't have a big marketing budget. They want to compete in the niches and things like that and just get those one or two deals would be great. And I would highly recommend the bigger companies that are doing volume and bulk to still do that if you can. For us, what we decided was we're going to go into other markets and just hit the scalable big bulk items and look at our numbers and just dial in the numbers and focus on the conversions. So for me, you know, it makes more sense for me to just blanket postcards yep. and, and get that response. Our, our response rate might be low, but we're sending enough to be able to hit the people who likely aren't being hit by the other smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So we're getting outside that ring and hitting them and being consistent. Like I really think consistency is the key in all of this. People will mail for a month or two months and then quit, say it doesn't work. Their response rate's really low. So what I look at is how many more people can I hit? How many more postcards can I send versus the response rate that I might get for a higher price mail piece? So what I find is interesting is once you get to a point and a level, everybody's got an opinion on what they like to do and what what they think should work. And then it's just about dialing in the numbers. So everybody that I talk to is like, I do it this way and I go, yeah, I can see that. Like, I, it makes total sense. And we do it this way and most people are saying, okay, yeah, that makes sense for you. So, but what I do see is our numbers are getting squished. Like our profit margins are starting to tighten up. It's costing a little bit more to get a deal. Uh, fortunately, we're, we're able to sell the contract for more on the back end to keep up with that increase in, um, in supply basically or decrease in supply and increase in cost. And the demand is increasing too for deals. So our price is going up. So they, the numbers are going up kind of in line and that's the key for us to watch. Um, so postcards, letters, we do send letters. We send some handwritten letters, like you said, to some very specific 
targeted places at where it costs us more money to send them to, but they're on a list that we know is a higher quality list than yeah. this huge equity list that we have of like a hundred thousand people. Yeah. I think the most critical thing that you said is test your results, Yep. right? Track every track, what you're doing to understand what's working, what isn't working. Um, I think a lot of people do not do that and they kind of just go blind. Uh, you know, they're, they're spending money blindly. And if you're doing volume, especially at yours, I mean, it is so critical to understand your numbers and know if things are, you know, ticking up or down and why. And uh, being able to understand that and then pivot if you need to, depending on the mail piece and testing out different things. Yep. We're watching this and reporting on it weekly in our level 10 meetings, our EOS level 10 meetings. Yep. Every week the scorecard is, what's our response rate? And I get an email, even now, I don't spend very much time in this company, but I'm on the email list every week. I get every single acquisitions rep in every city. I get the report. How many appointments did they go on? How many offers did they make? How many are under contract? How many are in negotiations? And then my lead team, I get the, how many phone calls did we get? What was the percent uh, live answer rate? What, how many appointments were set by which rep? And then in which market? And then all of our Google and Facebook leads, it's all, it's good or bad. It's, we've got appointments set. We can't get a hold of this person. So I can see trends. And that's what I look at. I look at the trends and when I, usually I can just see, it's almost, I, I call it like looking at the matrix. I can just see the matrix as I look at these emails, uh, just like Neo was able to do, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then I can see when things are a little bit off and I'm just looking at trends and then I'm calling Nate and saying, Hey, what's going on here? So, and he, usually I say, Hey, what's up with this? He goes, ah, I'm already on it at, at this point. So I feel a lot better. Awesome. So you talked about tracking. And that's the next place I wanted to go. Um, how do you track all this? You're stacking lists. You've got different mail pieces, different types of cards going out. How are you tracking it? So right now, uh, Excel, um, on the lead management. So, um, everything prior to somebody responding, it, we have an, ex, I have an Excel database that it's pretty advanced. I mean, my background's accounting, so I'm a spreadsheet geek. Um, so I know really how to manipulate Excel to provide different, uh, key indicators. So when I have all of my leads, they're in Excel. I have a summary. I have my marketing campaigns all lined out. Um, but we're in the process of building a, um, a software that's going to take that away from us and do it automatically. And uh, so we'll have a nice dashboard, calendar view, all that stuff. Yeah, I know so you being one of our mastermind members, I saw some of the posts inside the group that you're yeah. looking for like a subset of people to help you uh, test this out. So is this is something that you're working on right now for like list stacking and things like that? Yeah, we're about 95% done. Um, we'll be done by the end of the week. So oh, I'm, really, awesome. I'm so excited. We've been working on this for a long, long time. Well, it's definitely something that's needed in the marketplace, no doubt. I think the list stacking and things like that, like our list management is a total disaster. It can, if you're not really paying attention to it, you can really screw things up. Like if each row of that Excel sheet is not formatted the same, it goes over to the mailhouse. I've had some big issues with mailhouses in the past. I've had where the name and the address were off just one line. And so every single mailer, it's all variable data, which we'll talk about in a minute. But with variable data, you've got, Dear Bill, I want to buy your house at 123 Main Street. It would say Dear Bill, and then the address would not be Bill's address because every name would be one off. So it was yep. just, it's embarrassing. I will say our response rate definitely ticked up. It was up. Yeah. It almost could be a strategy <laughs> in and among itself of like just getting your phone to ring. Yeah. So, um, the other part of tracking is using different phone numbers for different um, mm-hmm. lists, right? Yes. So really having a, uh, so we use CallRail. I don't know what you use. Do you Same use CallRail also? Call so 
what that does is it'll give you multiple phone numbers. You can um, put different phone numbers for different, uh, different lists, different mm -hmm. marketing channels and things like that. That way you can track what your response is and yep. really dial that in. Um, and I will say every mail house will give you a, a proof when you order a, a mail piece. Look at your phone number, please. Everyone who's listening to this, I'm going to say it one more time. Look at your phone number when you get the proof. I have had a mail house um, put my phone number one off. So it was a different phone number. I and I had someone, we sent, we, I think it was at the time we were sending about 30,000 a month. So we sent out 30,000 postcards. Well, it's probably 10,000 because we dropped that into, uh, or 7,500 dropping into four weeks. And we send that out and someone found our website, came to the website, called that phone number and said, hey, this phone number doesn't work that you put on your card because I never would have known. Yeah, right. Number right. one, that's probably the most motivated seller I've ever heard of. But number two, <laughs> you really got to check that stuff because that can, that can bite you. Now they, they paid for it. They fixed the problem. And by the way, it wasn't Justin's company in case anybody's wondering when they're listening. Um, but that can be a big issue. I, that's happened to me twice. Once when it was my fault and once when it was their fault. So I really recommend you guys look at the proofs, read through them. Don't overlook that stuff. Don't phone it in. Um, everybody, we're, we're all human here. It can make yes. mistakes. The and proofs are there for a reason. Yeah, make sure you look, look at them because we've definitely had that, you know, those issues. Someone didn't look at it and then they were getting calls in and, you know, they had the wrong phone number. They put their billing phone number or something like that when they didn't put their you know, their, their phone number for people to call back. So, um, definitely look at that stuff. Yep. I think those proofs are, are key. I know as I got like more and more advanced and I was becoming the big business owner, oh, I'm not going to look at that stuff. I've looked at them 50 yeah. times or somebody else checked it. Right. So really yeah. make sure you're getting at least one or two looks inside of your company, depending on the size. And, um, and then postage, let's talk about postage a little bit because it's, that's one thing when I got started, I really didn't understand the difference between maybe standard mail and first class mail. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what is the difference? So there are a couple of key differences there. Um, with first class, first class, you're going to hit the prospect. USPS says between four to six business days. Um, if it is undeliverable, it will come back to you. Um, however, first class mail is about 17 cents more expensive than standard class mail. Standard class mail takes, they, USPS says two to three weeks. Uh, when we're sending out of Boston and we're sending to California, generally it's hitting about seven or eight business days. Um, so we don't really see it hit two to three weeks unless it's near like Christmas or certain holidays when they're really backed up. Um, but you will not get um, undeliverable mail and um, it's generally cheaper. Now you can do a, you can request a return service but the USPS says that they charge you when they return it back to you um, for the additional postage because that's why you're not paying the um, extra cost because you're not getting the undeliverables back. The, the other thing that I noticed when I was sent, so I remember the first mailer that I ever sent out was, I had no idea what the difference was. I just picked the cheapest thing on the website. Yeah. And I sent it out and I went to my first mastermind meeting, my first seven figure flipping meeting. I said, okay, I hired somebody already, even before the first meeting, I didn't even know what I was doing. I hired somebody to answer the phones and I sent my first mailer out and I thought it was going to hit while I was there because I sent it three or four days before I left. And I'm sitting there and I'm not, I'm looking on call rail. I'm not getting any calls. I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm standing up going, I don't know what happened. My mail, nobody's calling. Maybe I just 
maybe I screwed up. And it was, a, I hired this woman so she would be ready to answer the calls while I was out away at the mastermind yeah. meeting, right? I just, she didn't have anything else to do. I thought she'd be answering calls, potentially going on appointments, doing all this stuff. And it was like two weeks later of me paying her $500 uh, a week for her to do nothing other than a little bit of accounting, putting on a lockbox here and there on a flip that I was doing. And until my mail hit because I use standard mail and I had no idea about it. And the other thing that I saw was um, it typically goes, gets dropped in bulk with a lot of the other junk mail. So standard mail, the way that I understand that they do it is that it's shipping out with all the stuff that's being kind of bulk dropped on that, those days where the post office is sending out like the magazines and the, the, the ads and the marketing pieces and all that stuff. So you kind of get lumped into that as opposed to potentially being the only kind of, uh, if you're first class mail, the only kind of standout kind of marketing type piece that they got that day. Is that true? Um, I haven't really seen like we can we can actually track um, our mail and when it when it hits depending on what days they're hitting on different days they don't all hit at the you know certain time frames within the mm. week so we really haven't seen that all that much um, one other aspect I will say like postcards like small postcards right you're always going to send first class um, larger postcards are generally standard class and the reason for that is actually first class rate is cheaper on small postcards cheaper than standard class because mm. they have a special rate for first class with small postcards but when you get into larger postcards the standard rate is now cheaper than the first class um so that's one thing to note when you're doing postcards you're you sh should be mailing first class when it's you know a smaller postcard four and a half by five and a half um most mail houses are going to have that option only as first class anyways um but for the letters you have the variability of uh, standard class and first class. Yeah, that and that's where I was getting started. It was all letters. I'd send all letters because, yeah. frankly, I didn't know what I was doing. And that seemed to be the thing. Yellow letters, it was like, everybody's sending yellow letters. So, go send right. yellow letters. So, now what I do is I kind of brand my, uh, I put my logo on there. And I want, I used to, I used to kind of alternate between this guy uh, that would just, this person who's just, it's my name was wanting to buy your house. And then this corporation and I alternated those every month. And then I only sent every other month. So it was really like four months apart that they would get one for me. And then they would get one for my company. And now that we send every month, um, then I started doing it that way. And then I said, you know what? I want to be the guy that they hear from every single month. Like they just I want them to go, I want them to go, this blackjack will not stop sending yeah. me mail every single month. And eventually they're going to go, well, I do actually need to sell my house. So who's probably the best person to buy it? It's the guy who has enough money to send me mail for yes. two years. Yes. And I know exactly who it is. It's not the fly by night, the come and go. So I'm trying to build like company credibility, even if it's in a bad way in their mind of this is the person who's going to just keep sending them mail. They're going to keep dropping it in the recycling bin until they're ready. Because mm -hmm. the way I look at it is these people, the human element is so hard to, um, to pin down. It's like how they feel when they walk to the mailbox is going to determine whether they call me or they throw it in the recycling bin. Yeah. And so I want to be there as often as I can afford to be there and at the right time when they're ready to make that call. So how do you feel about that? Do you alternate stuff? Do you, is it always your company? Always my logo. I always use my logo, my company on every people, piece of uh, mail that I send out and really any marketing activity that I can do where I can put a logo on there. And again, it's, it's for consistency and I'm building your, what you're doing is you're building your brand. Yep. So just like Coca-Cola still markets, so they get in front of you, everybody knows who they are, 
but they still always use their logo because um, people are more likely to remember a logo, an image, rather than just a name. And if they're getting other mail pieces from other people, you're, you're separating yourself with your logo and consistently, uh, sending consistently. So um, that's a huge aspect of it. And as I'm sure you've seen, the more times that you touch someone, uh, the more likely it is that they'll give you a call back because now everything, they know it's a reliable company. You've been sending for you know, over a year and you're, you've been consistent. Um, so that all builds your brand. It builds trust. Yep. I, I agree with that. I mean, Budweiser doesn't spend millions of dollars in the Super Bowl commercials just for, to spend money. I mean, right. it's, it's about getting in front of more and more people. You stop marketing, we stop branding, we stop building our credibility. We just we stop seeing those returns. Mm -hmm. And I think um, it's the other thing that I want to point out if you're mailing. So I've, I've also worked with some people who are doing mail and they're doing online advertising. So they're doing pay-per-click. Yep. They'll put their logo on their mail and then what will happen, and I was, I was working with one company uh, in our mastermind group who they were like, my pay-per-click is absolutely killing it and my mail is just not showing up. I'm not getting the numbers that I want. And so they stopped mailing. And then their numbers of their pay-per-click, their whole business started really imploding. It started really going down. So what was happening was their mail piece was, was going into the mailboxes and they were Googling their, their company name, most likely. Yeah. So this is what I've seen in my business. They'll Google the company name. They'll click on the ad. Your pay-per-click ad will pop up because they Googled your business name. And then they'll fill out that form or call that phone number and they'll misplace it to a pay-per-click lead. Mm -hmm. And they'll take it all the way to closing thinking it's a pay-per-click lead and they'll give credit on their KPI tracker for pay-per-click, but it'll really be a mail piece. So one thing that we do is we track that all the way to the closing table. So at the closing table or on the phone, how did you hear about us? And that way, even though they may have came from a pay-per-click ad or a Facebook ad or something like that, it really was a mail lead. Like if without that mailer, they never would have Googled our company name. They never would have got to our, our ad. They might have, but I doubt it. They're looking at us. They're looking at credibility right now. Think about what you do anytime you get a referral or anything. You sit down at the computer, you type in the information and you start researching now. This is the world of information that's happening right now. So you, what you could be doing is misclassifying your leads and your deals to the wrong marketing channel and screwing up all your numbers. So I would highly recommend everybody out there really take it all the way. Just have everybody along the channel ask how they heard about us because you're creating this ecosystem. If you're doing more than one marketing channel, you're creating an ecosystem to allow people to come in the way that they feel most comfortable. Do you, do you see that too in your business? That's such like a pro tip. Yes, at 100%. And actually, we've seen it much bigger on our marketing side, our marketing company side. Um, we really, we had an issue with our Facebook ads and Facebook ads were performing fine, but something happened with them they, that they stopped for a month. And uh, when we saw the difference of traffic that we got, it was huge, like beyond what we even thought that we were actually generating from Facebook. And um, you know, with our website, it should track from where it's coming from. But there's a lot of little um, kind of in the minutia where it could be misclassified. So we actually have to change that. So even uh, the first order that somebody places, we always ask them, how did you hear about us? Because we're not just relying on kind of the back end website, understanding where they really came from. Because a lot of times we've seen a big, big difference, like you, you were just saying. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you have just one marketing channel and that's the only place you are, you're not, you have no online presence, you have nothing. So back when I was just getting started, it was very easy. 
It's like, it's either an absentee owned house or it's an owner occupied house. It's on one of my two lists. That's it. And now really digging down and classifying this stuff is the most important thing, especially for you guys that are out there that are doing volume and bigger businesses. It's very easy for stuff to get lost in the noise. And one or two deals, just changing that denominator of the calculations that you're doing for your cost per deal or your profit per deal, it can change it. It can skew it a lot. And you can end up thinking that you're, you're, that's, it's likely why a lot of people think that their direct mail isn't working. But I'll tell you what, you shut it off, it could be game over for your entire business. So, and I know it would be for ours. I mean, a lot of the pay-per-click stuff that comes through is they've seen a mail piece. They've gotten six or seven of our mailers. So we're always cross-referencing our pay-per-click leads. Are they on our list? Have they gotten mail from us before? Where are they? How did they get in our ecosystem? We're talking to them. We're asking them questions. And usually it's like, I think I got a mailer or something, but I found you as online. Then I looked at this, these reviews. Then I checked out Better Business Bureau. Then I looked at your Facebook page and then I decided to call. It's like, okay, with all all that stuff. And that's what we talked about it with Stephanie on the Facebook stuff is having that organic Facebook um, page is really important because everybody's looking at you. They're trying to figure out if you're somebody they want to work with. Absolutely. I mean, everybody checks your website now, right? Website and even Facebook. I mean, it's a digital age. So when a lot of people, when we send out direct mail, we see a lot of hits coming to our website right after that. Um, So so definitely. And, And going back, like, we try to, just like you, we do have call rail. We have different phone numbers for different um, types of activity, but we'll always go back and say, what was the first, what have they received so far? Has it been text message, ringless voicemail, you know, direct mail? And we'll always look back to that first message and then talk to them and figure out what really, uh, you know, uh, got them to respond to us. Or, so we just have better data points on, on the lead. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you, I think you guys have some different, um, setups inside of your marketing company, inside of open letter marketing, you've got different sequences and things like that, where they'll get a letter and you can actually like drip out different things for investors. Do you guys do that? Yes. Yep. So what do you see as far as like that kind of response? Is, is it increased response versus just sending a, the same letter over and over or postcard over and over? Um, it depends. So not the same, I wouldn't recommend the same strategy for every single person. And I'll give you a reason. So some people um, will send direct mail and then hit a ringless voicemail right after. We can offer you know, that stacked uh, marketing strategy for people. So the, the mail hits on Wednesday, they're getting a ringless voicemail a couple of days later following up on the mail piece that they were just received. Um, those will get a lot of calls. Response rates increase substantially. However, not everybody wants that, right? The investor that has maybe one or two lead intake people that might just be too overwhelming and they're going to get too many unqualified leads that are going to get called in. So it's actually absolutely going to crush their lead intake people. So a lot of people don't like that. However, if you're a real estate investor and also have a real estate agency, now might, they might want to have all those calls coming in because they have different ways to um, monetize that lead. So they want to talk to as many people as possible to come in. And if they do have an interest in selling, but just not the, at the investment price, they have real estate agents that they can work with. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty important thing to point out. Response rate doesn't always dictate what you want. So, I mean, I could send out yes. one of these uh, fourth notice, your house is about to be foreclosed on, if you don't call us immediately, type mailers that people used to send and they have a 20% response rate. But it's, it's all 
well, how'd you get my information? It's, it's hate calls, right? Mm-hmm. And all that does is jam up my lead intake folks. And you might not have the manpower to be able to answer that kind of volume or call those people back. And then there's the idea of like a zip letter that maybe nobody will open except for the person who's, who thinks it's a check and they're incredibly motivated and you get like one or two calls. So it's all about kind of managing what you want your funnel to look yes. like. Like, yep. who do you want to call? Who are you trying to attract? You talked about that, that customer avatar in the beginning. Like, who are we trying to hit and target and design your piece? I, we played around. I'll give you guys another tip that we found. And basically, I look at my company as like a uh, R&D department for marketing for our mastermind members. And the really high-level people that we have inside the group that are on these calls, it's the R&D for our group. We're spending money. I'll spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 trying something new. It'll fall flat. And it's okay because we build it into our R&D budget. But we played with a different card that was all, I thought it would be nice. It was like a three-step, this is our three-step blackjack process, like proven process. It was a pretty card. It was glossy. It had colors on it. It had kind of like these three cutouts. And I was like, man, this card is going to produce. I was 100% certain that this was going to change the game for us in the, in the direct mail company or our direct mail business. And before it was an urgent notice, houses wanted, like kind of call to action card that stands out, just a typical standard card that a lot of people send. And I said, this is innovative. We're going to be new. I'm finally having an original thought in my real estate business. It tanked. And normally I would say the, the difference in response rate is really hard to track, right? Like it, you have to change just like one variable to, mm-hmm. to and, and see a huge difference in response rate. Because remember, it's the human element. It's somebody walking out to the mailbox feeling a certain way. I can't control all of the things that are going on in their lives. Yeah. So if my response rate changed by a half a percent or something, it, it could be the fact that it was a different month or they were feeling like just, I don't know, 10 people felt a little different that day. But mm-hmm. we saw like a cut in half on this and I could not, and we, we ran it for three months. So it wasn't like we ran it for one drop and that was it. We ran it to our entire list for three months. And it was like a coupon type card. Like one of these things that doesn't have a strong call to action. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, give us a call if you're interested in seeing what we have to offer, basically. And right. it really just cut it in half. It was a horrible response rate. And so we, we got rid of it, went back to the strong call to action. And that that's one thing that I do feel very, very strong about is having a call to action, a very specific call to action on everything that we do. The other thing that I really love about postcards versus letters is I feel like everybody has to at least look at my postcard to throw it in the trash can or the recycling bin. With a letter, I actually have a two-step process. They actually have to open the letter to, and then read it. When I get junk, I'll just throw it in the trash can. So mm-hmm. the likelihood of them seeing it, so putting something on the envelope, getting them attracted to open it, something exciting, um, that's kind of why I tr- trend towards postcards in the big bulk because every time somebody looks at it, they go, this blackjack guy mailed me again and throws it in the trash. This blackjack guy. So if you're putting your logo on the letter or the envelope or something like that, I think that all of that stuff is, think about all of that when you're designing your structure of your mail piece and things like that because yes. I love the fact that they have to basically cuss me out every time they throw it in the recycling bin with a postcard. Like they yeah. know it's me. They know I'm hitting them again and again and again and again. And that's, that's like the, my strong feeling about the marketing pieces that we do. So do you want to pause? I can grab one of my uh, envelopes. It's yeah. Like really customized. Hold on. Yeah. Let's pause. Right. 
Okay. If you guys heard that, this is real, uh, like real podcasting. Justin's like, oh, great point. I'm going to go run and get my envelope so I can show you guys. So if you're watching on YouTube or on our Facebook page, that like the seven figure uh, house and wholesaling or my Bill Allen REI Facebook page, you'll be able to see this. So, uh, he looks like he's got his kind of letter. <laughs> so we have two, we have two, uh, envelope styles. One is like your professional letter. The other one is more invitation style. So we do very unique pieces that always stand out. And here's just one example that we've used. So you can see oh, it's, that's like, cool. it's like Fenway Park. Yeah. Oh, man. So super unique. No one else is getting a letter like this unless they're getting it from us. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, um, so it, doesn't, it actually doesn't look like anything. So typically you see these invitation envelopes or, um, and I guess you can do different kinds of stamps, right? Pre-canceled stamps or yep. you can do first class stamps and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've seen lots of people, some people on their postcard actually putting a, um, like one of the cheap stamp, actual real stamps on the postcard. I've seen mm -hmm. that people have tried that inside the group to try to increase their response rate. Um, basically for like for me now, I'm trying to spend as little as possible to get in front of as many people as possible, but a letter like that is going to get open. There's no doubt yeah. about it. it looks yeah, like I haven't seen a big difference in putting a stamp on actual postcard because a postcard is what it is. It's a postcard. Uh, with letters, though, absolutely. And I never would put an indicia on a letter. Always use a live stamp. Yep. And uh, so they can actually do, um, so they can do a first class stamp or if it's a, um, let's see, uh, not first standard. class mail, standard mail, you can do yep. a, like a pre-canceled stamp. Is we always right? do live stamps on, en okay, on envelopes and trifold flyers. Always. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree with the, with the postcards, the live stamp. I had, we had some people inside the group say that was going to bump their response rate, but over time it's there, nothing. And like I said, uh, I don't know, 0.1 to 0.2% response rate is not enough change for me to drop everything and start spending yes. more money. Um, so let's talk about, I think it's probably good for us to transition to, so we talked about the list. We talked about, um, the tracking, like different phone numbers, different Excel sheets. We talked about the postcards versus letters. We talked about stamps. We talked about posters. We talked about all that stuff. Now, why don't we just share some of our numbers and some of the things like inside of our direct mail, what's happening. And um, I'll, I'll start because for us, as you guys know, we're in three cities primarily, and we just went into two more. So we're in Pensacola, Florida, we're in Nashville, Tennessee, we're in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then we just went into a city, a small city in Kentucky and Huntsville, Alabama. So what I see is in our smaller markets, I typically see a higher response rate. So the, the, we're in like 350,000 people right around there, 250, 350. And what I see is a, just under 1% response rate from all postcards. This is, I'm, I'm like 0.9%. And then in Nashville, which is hyper competitive, you know, multi-million person market, we see about a half percent and maybe a little bit less than that, depending on um, how much we're sending. And like I said before, we're sending about, about 120,000 pieces a month. So if you do the math, we're somewhere around like thirty dollars to $35,000 in mail, um, somewhere like that, probably thirty-five. And then the rest of our marketing budget, we have like another $10,000 that goes out for pay-per-click and Facebook and stuff like that. And that's pretty much it. We do direct mail, which you can see is, is almost like three quarters of what we spend on, on marketing, which is potentially why, but why we have uh, the majority of our deals come from that. However, there's only so much that we can do in Google and Facebook. Like it's, those are people looking for us. This is us sending out a net looking for other people in the direct mail space. And 
I really think of us as a marketing company and we track the numbers and deal with the dials. We're a marketing sales and operations company. So I, I look at it as there's leads and we can adjust that based on the dials. There's conversion. And then there's what are we doing on the back end, the exit? So maximizing our profit. Mm-hmm. And whether that's wholesale deals, flips, wholetails, whatever we're going to do to maximize the profit on that to bring in the most revenue for the company. Those are the three things that our business is. And this series, we're talking about the marketing side of it because that's the dial that we can tweak to get an increased direct response and increased, um, you know, then we're talking about, okay, what's our conversion from leads to appointments? And then, then it turns mm-hmm. into a sales cycle from there. Yep. But follow up, follow up, follow up, consistency on the, on the marketing, everything. We try, to, we try to squeeze out as much money as we can from every lead that comes in. And that's kind of our numbers from the overall direct mail response. I don't know what yours are and what they look like. So we send about 12000 a month, um, so much less than you. Um, but we're primarily sending all letters. Um, the areas that we're in are hyper competitive. And for right now, I mean, we send 12,000, so not a huge volume. However, that's primarily because um, I've had some acquisitions people come in, come out. So right now we're kind of at a low where um, we have somebody that just left and I have a part-time acquisitions person. I'm looking to hire another person. So unfortunately, the numbers are down because purely we don't have many people to answer the phones. And I don't have a lot of time to answer the phones either. Um, so it's usually my, my um, staff that's taking the lead intake calls that are on my marketing company are also kind of doubling up on JS2 Homes. Um, so it's a little bit challenging right now. So that's why we've kind of gone, gone down to about you know, 10, 12,000 a month. Our response rate is pretty consistent around like 0.7, 0.8%. Again, we're in Boston and north of Boston, which is hyper competitive. Um, so those response rates are actually, um, pretty, I'm pretty happy with those. So how do you think that's hurting you? Like not answering live versus answering live and like jumping on and having somebody who can convert that call. Who's like highly trained on it, or maybe, maybe your reps on the open letter side are, are good at talking on the phone. Um, they're fine with talking on the phone, but they can't convert. They can't convert anybody. So they'll take the general information. They'll pass it over Mm -hmm. to me. And right now, so the, the last, my acquisitions person that was full-time just left about a week and a half ago. And now I have someone part-time that um, came on about a week ago. So there's a small transition period. Um, if it was a longer transition period, I'd probably, re, I'd probably slow down on direct mail even more because the worst thing that I want to do is pay for direct mail when we can't keep up with the leads. Um, but I don't want to stop it. I will never stop direct mail. So um, it's a fine point of back and forth and just uh, making sure that we're not, we're not stopping direct mail, we're keeping it going because I don't want to stop the momentum. That's the important thing. When you start marketing, you never want to stop your momentum and keep on going. And that's where I see a big struggle in a lot of investors. They get deals, they forget about keeping uh, going on the marketing, they stop and then it takes so much time to build that momentum back up. So we'll, we'll reduce it a little bit, um, but not shut it off. And we just have a small time period between when the other acquisitions person went off and another person's coming on. So really, it's up to me to make sure I call these people back. They're loaded into our CRM. Whenever a call comes in, they're automatically loaded into Podio. So I know who I have to call back and when and keeping up with that stuff. But what I do is I call them back. And because I'm limited on time, I really uh, make sure that they're very qualified before anybody comes out. 
So yeah, this sounds like the beginning of my business. <laughs> I, I was, when I got started, it, I was flying 10 or 12 hours a day. Um, I had a, a lead intake person, so a phone person, but I said to her, only give me the super hot appointments because I just don't have time. It's like nights and weekends. Yeah. Every It was away from my family. And I was always scared to increase the volume of my leads because it would just mean more appointments for me, which I didn't have time to do. And it was this huge cycle. So I'm sure there's people that are listening right now going, that's me right now. And what I was able to do when I brought on a sales rep, I, and I was filtering by just the super hot leads, right? And I wasn't getting any deals or I, was, I would get like one random one. And I, I was struggling as a business owner then. Yeah. And then when I brought that acquisitions rep in and they dove in the database and just started, they're like grabbing these leads that were cold or they were marked as like dead. They were you know, re-sparking those and talking to them and realizing there's motivation there because the lead intake wasn't flushing that out properly, yeah. really digging into it. So, um, it was uh, like, like wildfire when she came in, she was putting a house under contract a week and then she would do four or five deals a month Then it was seven, then it was 10. And I was going, wow, like how could I be restricting my company this bad by doing that? And, and when the cool part is, if you're listening to this, when you've got your lead intake person who you're not answering the phone anymore and you got your sales rep and you're not going on the appointments anymore, you have no problem just cranking up the dial and dropping more mail because now you're not the one who has to answer the phone and you're not the one who has to go on the appointment. So I'm sure you're looking forward to having those people back where you can just yeah. go, you know what? And, and I love that you brought that point up because I saw that so much when I first hired my first acquisitions person. I was just like you, I would screen so many people out because I didn't want to waste time. I wanted my... In order to go out, I wanted to be 80, 80 to 90% sure that I was going to lock the deal up and I wouldn't go to them. And then when I started hiring these acquisitions people, they were getting stuff under contract and I'm like, and they're just re-sparking old leads um, just because they were, they were opening up. They had more time. They had more availability to go out, build rapport, talk to these sellers, walk through, and they're locking them up a lot more. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking about right now is I'm restricting and losing deals um, but that's generally the first thing that my acquisitions person will go back into is the old leads to try to respark. And actually, not only that, I'm hiring more acquisitions people than I otherwise would. So this doesn't happen again. But I mean, stuff like this happens in business. You have to kind of roll with the punches. Nothing is ever a perfect business all at the 100% of the time. Um, so this is just kind of what we're going through and the struggles that, that we have on that side. Yep. I totally agree. I mean, we, we just had a sales rep quit down in Pensacola out of nowhere. We didn't expect it. And fortunately we had somebody else who had worked for us before who was interested in coming back, but she doesn't live close by there anymore. So she's having to do everything over the phone now. So we're really changing a lot based on that and just trying to figure out what, where our business model goes. And the big thing for us is our margins are really getting squeezed tight. So we're spending more on uh, cost per marketing per deal. We're seeing um, less, less volume come through and our overhead and operational costs are going up. So we're trying to figure out, hey, how, we've got to keep pushing our margins and make sure that the company's profitable. And a lot of that is the cost per marketing going up as much mm -hmm. as it is. So there's you know, lots of things to think about in this business and everything's not perfect. Believe me, like, look, Justin runs a direct mail company and a, a real estate company. I run the seven figure flipping group and a real estate company. And we're constantly juggling all of that stuff. Like I've got, Always. we're spending time in multiple areas to make sure that we're taking care of our clients. We're taking care of our staff. We're making sure that our, our business is running right. And it's always just 
I'm like, feel like a mad scientist all the time, just tweaking the dials, looking at the numbers. It's so true. And, and that's just a regular business. When you're scaling, like how you, you've scaled over the last couple of years, I mean, additional things break down. There's more problem solving. I mean, it's, it's just never ending. Yep. And you're running multi-million dollar development deals. So I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of headaches that go on with that. I've, I've seen some of your right. timelines on um, county approval and stuff like that. City yeah. approval. <laughs> it's not fun. Yep. So, okay. We've got the, we've got, I think we've, I think we've dropped so many nuggets in here that if they're not increasing their number of leads based on some of these things or getting some, um, like some ideas of what they could potentially do so from the marketing side, list pulling to the types of direct mail to under, even newer folks that are kind of sending their first mailer, I think are, um, have gotten what they need from this, this podcast. And if you can't send direct mail after this and jumping in our f- free Facebook group and watching the video on list source and stuff like that, um, I, I, I don't really have any help for you, but, um, <laughs> I can think, I drop one more nugget. Yeah, one please. More. Um, one mail piece that is working like amazingly well for us is um, it looks like a printed out um, email. So mm-hmm. it looks like a, a email. It says, Hey, I, you know, I've been trying to get in touch with you um, about your property. I've attached an offer to purchase your property um, below on this email. And in the email at the bottom, it looks like there's a little PDF attachment that says offer to purchase, you know, one, two, three main street. And you know, it's printed out and it's sent in the mail. We have our, the response rate is absolutely ridiculous on people calling, emailing and texting us in. Hey, I never received that email. Can you, can you get it back to me? Um, spurring all these calls. So that, that one is like, even the people on, um, you know, my team answering the phones, they're like, cause they know what mail piece is going out without even looking at any numbers. They're like, this mail piece is crazy because on open letter marketing, I want them to know what's working and what isn't. And so they're right off the bat saying this, this mail piece is getting a lot of calls coming in. That's awesome. Because um, that's one thing that we're trying to do is just, how do you make more offers? Like, yeah. and this is a perfect way. Well, Hey, yeah. yeah, let me, let me pull it up right now. Right. Um, Hey, what's, so what's going on with you? Are you thinking about selling? Uh, yeah. No, I just want my offer. Oh, okay. Well, hold on. Let me get it. Or yeah, I am thinking about selling. And yeah. um, I've got a lot of these yellow letters and things, but you're just offering You're giving me an offer right now. So what, how many, how many mail pieces do you guys send out for clients? Do you know? Uh, yeah. So we're about, uh, in January, we did about 750,000 right around there. 750,000. Yep. Wow. That's awesome. And then, uh, so you're doing 12,000 you're, and, and I want people to know, like this is, you've got this kind of volume with other clients, you're seeing what's working for them. So it probably yeah. helps seeing what's going on all around the U S in different areas, what's working, what's not working. Do you guys offer any, like, is with consulting and stuff like that, you'll give recommendations. I, I noticed you said something in the middle of this interview, which was, um, I, I typically don't, rec- don't with the lists, we'll give some recommendations, but we won't, yeah. uh, we'll kind of help people push them in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's one thing we really try to focus on is providing, uh, you know, additional value to our clients and not just saying, hey, you know, just place your order online and just get back to us. Uh, everyone in the office knows what I do internally. And that's really how it is. I tested my own business. If it works well, like I'm a customer myself of open letter marketing. So I test it before we push it out. So everybody knows how it works and we talk about it. So they have an understanding when somebody says, Hey, I want to send direct mail. They go into like, okay, tell me a little bit about your business, right? They want to understand what's the right, the right, uh, strategy for them. They're not just going to, uh, throw them to the website and say, just use this. 
Um, so we definitely do provide some consulting, a lot more handholding than I think other direct mail companies offer because we're in the niche. This is what we do. This is what my other company does. Um, we're investors. Uh, so yeah, they definitely provide more consulting. Awesome. Well, um, I think we've given them what they need to go out and be successful in the direct mail world. Obviously, we both love this stuff. We get the majority of our deals this way, you and I. So I've, I enjoyed talking about this stuff. And this is really my world that I live in. And I love it. I'm, I have very strong opinions on it. There's areas that, I, um, that I've tweaked over time. And it's one thing that I tell a lot of people is, in the beginning, you just kind of like follow the path. Somebody tells you what to do, you go do it. You start, you start gathering some information. Then you start doing a little bit more of it. You start growing it. You start thinking for yourself. And then at some point, you get to the point where you're the expert and you've got some um, uh, strong opinions on things. And that's where I want people to get in this business, where I see them early on. They're just kind of listening to podcasts. They're following the, they're in the free Facebook groups. They're in free forums. They're kind of just reading books, learning this information. And mm-hmm. it, there's so much noise out there and confusion of should I do this? Should I do this? Everybody's selling something. They're giving information. Nobody's sharing the fact that you know their business is, is, has some problems in it, right? It's, mm-hmm. hey, I sent out this direct mail piece, that one you're, you held up. I made $70,000. You should do this one piece and you'll right. make $70,000 on your first deal in a month, right? Which it's not the, it's not the case. You've got to test things, try things. So I'm, I'm very, I very strongly recommend people to find the person that they want to follow, find a company that they like, find somebody that they resonate with and have them like, listen to them. Like if, if it's a direct mail house and open letter marketing, what Justin's talking about here is, is resonates with you and somebody you want to work with because of his values and the way that he was open and sharing, then go do that. Like don't go look at five different things and watch YouTube videos of a hundred things and get confused because all that does is breed procrastination. Mm -hmm. you'll get in this loop of that analysis paralysis type thing, which you've all heard about. And the same thing goes for, obviously, for me on the the mastermind and mentorship side. If you listen to this podcast, probably somebody that you like to listen to there, we we have things that will help you along the way. And you're you're probably listening to 15 different people on 15 different podcasts going, maybe this is for me, maybe this is for me, I don't know. And next thing you know, you're not, you're doing nothing. So, for me, I just was doing what I was told in the very beginning and what other people, you know, giving me that, that information and feedback. I would take a little bit of action. I would start seeing results. I would kind of change my beliefs and move from there. And that cycle would just repeat over and over and over again. And I, I recommend you guys do the same thing, whether it's, you know, open letter marketing, whether it's us at Seven Figure Flipping, if it's anybody that I bring on the podcast that you resonate with, like, follow them. Like there's, there's some great people out there that are giving great information away, but be careful with the, the folks that are sharing like the best things that are happening in direct mail, because I don't have the perfect mail piece. I don't have the perfect list. I don't have the perfect thing. The one thing that people ask me is what's your best list? Like, what is the list that I need to pull right now? It's like, okay, well, it depends. Like how much do you want to spend? What's your budget? What, what's your infrastructure look like? How many people do you have to answer the phone? Mm -hmm. Who's going to go on the appointment? What does all that stuff look like? And we can really spend some time getting to know each other. And that's, I mean, we just got off a cruise where I put a panel together of a marketing, a marketing panel where it was people that do Facebook ads and Google ads and people that do texting and ringless voicemail and direct mail and in all different markets with all different opinions. And they, it was just spent two and a half hours answering questions. It was like, fire round of questions to them. And they were just answering questions and helping people. And then afterwards, 
they broke out into small groups and you could talk to them and spend time with them at this event. And ultimately, that's what this group is like. It's a tribe of people that are all together answering questions. And obviously, Justin's there to answer direct mail questions and Stephanie with uh, pay-per-click or uh, Facebook ads and things like that. And Andy McFarland with uh, pay-per-click and uh, SEO and all of these things. And we are all kind of experts in our own area, testing things in our own little market, like you're saying, with your business. That's, that's the biggest difference is, you know, you have people in the group that can substantiate the, um, the numbers behind it and how to do it and how to execute it because they've been doing it so much. You know, it's not the other people that maybe have tried it, it didn't work for them, and now they're telling everybody don't try it because it doesn't work, right? Um, so there's a huge difference and disparity of who to listen to, why to listen, you know, have they really done this? How long have they been doing this for? Have they built a good business? And um, just understand that you're following somebody that actually has the proven capabilities to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. I'm thankful to have you there because uh, someone to bounce ideas off of with direct mail and somebody who's working on like list stacking software and stuff like that. And I know that you give a discount to the group members and these are the people that are coming in on like beta testing that are helping you and you're helping them. Yeah. It's just cool to see where she got kind of like all helping each other. Uh, you know, Absolutely. what is it? Uh, rising tides lift all ships, right? So yes. we're all just kind of moving up together and helping each other with stuff that works and stuff that doesn't work. I love the fact that at the, on the cruise, somebody said, I said to them, I said, hey, um, hey guys, I'm spending a ton of money on other things, trying to be innovative and see what's working, but I'm not going to roll it out to you till it works or doesn't work. Yeah. And somebody yeah. raised their hand and said, can you share with us what hasn't worked? And I said, <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Let me name a couple companies that I tried to use that didn't work. And yeah. so you don't go spend your money. And then we got into this conversation about, um, yeah, I'm not going to share what we were talking about on the podcast, but it's, <laughs> uh, well, I'll talk to you after we stop recording, but it, it's, it, it was an area where, I mean, these, there was one guy who, is, who heard someone having success in his market. He's like, I'm going to figure this out. And there were three other experts in the room on this topic who were like, I know th that's genius. I never even thought to use that this way. And I said, guys, just stop. Here's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to leave the cruise and 15 of you are going to go try to do this on your own. Let's all get together and come up with a plan. And when somebody find out the 15 people that want to work on this, and when somebody reaches a breakthrough, you immediately share with the rest of the group. Because I feel like we're doing that all the time inside the, the yeah. mastermind. We're each like testing it and we're like, oh, I already tried that, but oh yeah, I didn't tell you. Or, or we're, tr we're all trying this at the same time going, yeah. what are we doing? Let's come together and let's communicate more. So it was really cool to see the light bulbs go off in everybody's head and say, you know what? This is this is gold because now we'll, instead of us all going to spend money, this person has the most money. They're willing to, to spend some on it. You go test it. We'll yeah. give you our input and feedback and our expertise on it. And then when you make a breakthrough, let's all share it together. So yeah, really great. cool stuff that happened on this cruise that us being together, like locked in a, on a ship for a week with nowhere else to go. And um, it, it just created incredible collaboration. So um, okay. Before we go, how can people find more about you and open letter marketing? Do you want to share anything with them? Yeah, they can always just shoot me an email at justin at openlettermarketing.com or they can check out the website at openlettermarketing.com. But they're welcome to shoot me an email. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, the Boston investor. I think that's my handle on Instagram and just my name on Facebook. So. Cool. And I, we'll and put the, uh, I have the, the Boston investor is because I had a blog for like five years when I started just detailing everything, videos, pictures, budgets, um, analysis, everything. Um, and I did, I had that blog for five years and that's what I called it. The Boston investor. 
So you've been, uh, you've been giving away information for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That was my biggest thing. Like once I started, I mean, cause when I started, I learned from every, everybody else. Yep. And, um, and that was my thing is I, once I started to pick it up and start doing more deals, I wanted to give back. And that was the, one of the first ways that I did that. Well, that's my favorite thing about you. And that's my favorite thing about the, the group that we have created here, because I, I love the fact that nobody holds anything back. It's, yeah, it's like open to share. I mean, you just, you probably shared three or four secrets of things that um, you would, I, I would on a podcast that thousands and thousands of people are going to listen to that um, uh, most people would not share at all. Like they yeah, just shield it from the Boston area. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that I don't think there's any Boston people that listen to this podcast except for you. So, um, all right. Well, Hey, uh, Justin, thanks so much for spending time with me. Um, for all of you guys that are out there, we have an event coming up in a couple months in Atlanta. It's our next mastermind event. We just got off our cruise and we're putting together this marketing series specifically for those of you who are trying to grow and scale your business. And I'm, I really, if our areas and markets aren't closed, I really want to start reaching out to you guys that are doing $200,000 or more, doing 10 deals a month or 10 deals a year or more. So consistently doing about a deal a month. That's the, the threshold to get into this seven-figure altitude group that we have, this mastermind group. And um, we're looking for people who fit our culture, who we are, the people who can like bring new ideas and share with us and, and obviously work with people like Justin and Stephanie and those that I bring on the podcast and myself to, to help us in our business because you're doing something that we're not doing and we're doing something that you aren't doing. So uh, these conversations like that Justin and I are having are what, are what we're having inside the Facebook groups and at our masterminds on a regular basis. So I'm, we would love to have you if our markets aren't full. We cap our markets now in about two or three people per market. So to, if you want to see if our market's full or if it's open, just go to sevenfigurealtitude.com. So the number sevenfigurealtitude.com. You can see a little bit about the mastermind. You can fill out an application and then Dave, our enrollment director, will reach out to you and see if you're a fit. Uh, we're really looking for people who are like us, who are givers, who are looking to grow their business to do something bigger and be just like, you know, set, set up their company like a company. Stop mm -hmm. the side hustle, the, um, the, Stop, stop the job, like get out of the job and build a business. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me. I was really trying to build a company and, um, and most of, most of us are full time. Um, and most of us are, are family type people. And that's the kind of people 100%. that we're, I love the cruise. We had like 195 people on the cruise and there was probably like 25, 20 kids and then spouses on there. And when I saw some of those kids just look up at their parents and, and they were speaking, um, given a presentation, their kids were in the back. I, I saw one, uh, one, uh, Jesse's daughter just go up to him and say, Hey daddy, I'm so proud of you. She stayed that's at awesome. 11 o'clock and he was tearing up. It was just amazing to see that. It was, that's exactly what I'm hoping my kids look at me like when I get older. So it's really cool to see that. And, um, so if you're looking for a place, if you're looking for your tribe to, you know, the average of the five people that you spend the most time with, if you want to spend some time with some different people that change your mindset, change your limiting beliefs, allow you to grow your company, then we'd love to have you or at least talk to you to see if you'd be a good fit for what we're doing. So sevenfigurealtitude.com, the number sevenfigurealtitude.com. And um, we got a mastermind meeting coming up pretty soon, actually, and we just got out of one. So um, the cruise was a little late and uh, just over two months till we go to Atlanta in April. So. Um, all right, Justin. Well, I had a good time with you. I hope uh, everybody got a lot out of this and I'm sure we're going to make some people more money just by listening to this, uh, this podcast. Good. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. Appreciate yeah, it. You're welcome. And I, uh, I wrote down a couple things that I'm going to, f I'm going to go pull a list right after we get off this uh, call. So, all right, awesome. Justin, thanks for the info. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. bye. 
Thanks for listening to the 7 Figure Flipping Podcast with Bill Allen. If you want to grow and scale your house flipping or wholesaling business, check out more insider tips and strategies from the nation's most successful real estate investors at 7figureflipping.com.